you have your Bibles, turn this morning to 1 Peter, the first epistle of Peter. And we're going to look at some verses in that, in that first chapter. Before we read it, let me give you a little bit of the historical context and why that I came here. Um, first, I, last week I, I preached a message that was not pleasant for me to preach, but I don't know that there was ever a message that's more needful or relevant than to speak to the church about our responsibility um, for the shape that our world is in today and that we um, take responsibility individually <clears throat> for our faults and failures, shortcomings, sins um, before God so that even if our nation doesn't escape judgment, we're able to escape judgment individually um, as people of righteousness. Um, it, that was a hard message for you to hear, and I'm sure it, it was just as hard for me to preach as it was for you to hear. I can assure you of that. But I thought about after the message last week, I said, Lord, you know I can't hit that hard every week or um, people will leave discouraged by the Word of God, not encouraged by it. So, I, you know, I've just been thinking and praying. I, I honestly spent a couple days this week, and I shared with the men. I've, I've tried to just come over here and pray and not ask God for anything. Because so much of my prayer life and so much of your prayer life is devoted to, Lord, I need this, I need this, I need this, or my friend needs this or needs that. So much of my time before the Lord is requesting. And sometimes that makes me miss um, all of the wonderful blessings and benefits that He has given to me. So I've tried to spend a couple of my times over here in prayer this week not doing anything but thanking God for His goodness and His mercy and His grace towards me, towards us. Um, God's good to us. He is good to us. I remember my kids going out when they was finna get a spanking like that. Don't, don't spank me, Daddy. Don't spank me, Daddy. But um, the Lord led me to this passage, I believe, to encourage you in where we are at right now. <clears throat> Historically, First and Second Peter is probably written sometime after the history of the book of Acts came to an end. And before the exile of John the Baptist to the Isle of Patmos. Now you, you can find all kinds of different dates for that stuff. But I believe probably somewhere between A.D. 64 and A.D. 69 is where both of the letters that Peter wrote were being penned. I believe he was in these letters writing from Rome. Although we'll see if you read on into the letter, he references Rome as being Babylon at one point. But that was a, I think... Partially him not wanting to reveal where he was to the people that were looking for him. And the other part is, is that he wanted to, uh, the people to understand that we are living literally or figuratively in Babylon, which is the antithesis of Jerusalem. Babylon and Jerusalem, if you read the Bible, is a tale of two cities that runs all the way through it. And Babylon being the city of the world and Jerusalem being the city of God. But anyway, Peter is writing this and that period of time that is right near the end of his life. Nero is the Roman emperor. And you do a little bit of history. I did a little bit of research this week and a little bit of study into Nero's rule and even those emperors that followed him and how brutally they attacked Christianity. Um, the story, you can read all kinds of different ideas about it, but the story is that Nero didn't get the support that he wanted to rebuild Rome um, from the other governor, so but he literally ordered it to be set fire and burned down. And most of the city was destroyed in the great fire of Rome. 
But when Nero began to be attacked for instigating that fire, causing that fire, maybe even setting the fire, calling for the fire to be set, um, to distract the attention from himself, um, he found a small sect of Christians dwelling in Rome and he began to level his assault against the Christians and blame them literally um, for setting the fire. And the, and the persecutions of Nero and those other emperors that followed are no notorious. Nero kind of set the stage for everything that was to follow. Um, but it became later on not about, oh, they started the fire. It, it was later on about their insurrectionists. They want to overthrow the government. They want to do this. They want to do that. And they became the target group of persecution. Um, I shared a video, and I don't know how many people were able to see it this week, but it was a depiction of some of what the Christians in Rome it's hard. It was hard for me to watch. I almost didn't make it through it. Um, but the Colosseum became um, a, spectac a spectacle for Christians to be um, bound and led into the Colosseum. Some of them were actually um, uh, robed in animal skins. Those skins were sewn onto them um, so that the lions and the dogs, the wild dogs that they turned loose, literally tore those Christians to pieces limb by limb while the crowd around them cheered. Um, there were special suits that were made for them. Um, those suits were, were tied at the wrist and the, and the ankles. They were filled with um, a combustible material like wax, and we see a candle burn. And, um, and then were tied to a stake, and Christians were used to light the streets and the gardens of Rome um, during Nero's time. They were literally burned alive at the stake. And so I, I think... Peter is writing this letter and his second letter in the midst of all of those persecutions that were going on. In fact, um, I think he made an explicit reference to it later on in this epistle when he said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. He was speaking specifically about them being tied to the stake and burned to death. He likely wrote this just before he himself was crucified. Um, and probably around the same time, time as the Apostle Paul was beheaded in Rome. They died, by most accounts that I've read, probably within a, even a few months, from within a few months of each other to a couple of years within each other. The Apostle Peter was crucified upside down by his own request, and the Apostle Paul was beheaded. So they're living in the midst of some very intense times. Persecution was being leveled on them um, that had been unprecedented. And I felt led to this book because Peter focuses in this book and in the second one that he wrote, this epistle, this letter to the churches, he focuses on the importance of believers living well in the midst of suffering. The stress of this letter is, I know what you're in. He's experiencing it himself. I know where we're living. I know what you're experiencing. But this is all the more reason for us to live well for Christ. Instead of being overcome by frustration, instead of being overcome by fear, instead of being driven by anxiety and anger, Peter said, this is our opportunity as Christians to shine for Christ more brightly than we have ever shone for Christ before. Um, and I, I'll just tell you, it's rough now for us. 
But it's not near as rough now for us as it is for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan this morning. And it never has been. I mean, I was blessed to be born in this nation, as were most of you. All my life, I've known freedom to worship. All my life, I've known prosperity. All my, not, not, not that I've been materially rich, but we are the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth, and the poorest among us are generally richer than most other people in the world. What if it gets rougher for us? What if we end up like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? What are we going to do then? A passage of Scripture kept coming to my mind this week when Jeremiah was just tired of preaching to the people the message that he was preaching. He was weary. He didn't want to do it anymore. I mean, it was a hard message he was preaching, and he just about got wore down by it. And this was early in his ministry. And, and the Lord said, Jeremiah, what are you going to do if you have run with the footman and they've wearied you, how are you going to contend with horses? How are you going to contend with the horsemen? And if right now, when it's reasonably a good time in your life, when, when the tree is green, when, when there's some fruitfulness still going on around you, what are you going to do when the Jordan swells out of its banks and washes it all away? I mean, he gave some analogies there, and he said, if you're tired now, if you're weary now, if you're being beat down by frustration and beat down by fear and beat down by anger and beat down by anxiety, now you're not going to make it for what's ahead. And so this whole letter from Peter, I think, is an encouragement to us to, in the midst of our trials to remember our ultimate purpose for being here is to shine brightly for Christ. Our prosperity, I'm afraid, has made us in our faith weak. And if we're going to shine for Christ, as we ought to, our faith has got to be made stronger than it is. First Peter chapter 1, look with me at verse 3. The first two verses are primarily just introductory, although they're packed with significance as well. Verse 3 is really where the letter actually begins in his admonitions and encouragements to the church. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season... If need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of, your, the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So right in the middle of this little short dialogue that we just read, sandwiched right between, right in the middle of verse 3 and verse 9, is a paradox of, of, of the Christian faith in verse 6. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now 
for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials. You greatly rejoice, but you're in a heavy place of great temptation and trial. So is it, is it really possible for people to have joy in the middle of sadness? Is, is it really possible for joy and sadness to coexist in the life of a believer? That we can be full of joy and heavy with sadness at the same time? I think it is. I th- in fact, I think that we can see little glimpses of it around us at different times of our life. Um, and the one that I thought about that stands out the most to me is you can go to the funeral of a believer and see incredible joy and deep grief at the same time. We can, we can rejoice about where they are and what they're experiencing and the life that they lived and, and the way that they impacted us. And we find great joy in that. I mean, I've, I preached Sister Peggy's funeral a couple of weeks ago and she actually had written a letter to her kids and grandkids 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago, preparing for that day that she'd leave this world. And I, I, they wanted me to read that. It was hard for me to read, but at the same time I thought, man, how incredible it is that a Christian can face death like this and say, here's what you meant to me, but I want you to be steadfast in your love for the Lord because I'm looking forward to seeing you again. There's, there's joy in the midst of the sadness. We, we can rejoice and have grief at the same time. Sadness because we're separated, I get that, I understand that, and rightfully so. I'm not glad when I'm separate from my love. I'm not even gr- glad, well, sometimes I am, let me tell you back. I was going to say I'm not even glad when my grandkids leave on Sunday afternoon, but sometimes I am. <clears throat> Just because I want a nap, and they can come right back after that. But we, we experience sadness upon the departure, but we also experience a great deal of gladness knowing this ain't the end. I mean, I... We can stand, in fact, I've read this passage of Scripture a hundred times at the graveside of a departed saint that God uh, in Christ Jesus has begotten us again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We don't stand at a grave thinking this is it, this is the end, this is as far as we can go, this is all, this is where it all stops. We know that's not true. We know that one day there's going to be a, a trumpet that sounds and a voice that shouts and that, that body that we lay in that grave, even though um, what Job said, uh, you can lay me in the ground, worms can devour my body, but I know that in my flesh I will see God. My Redeemer lives. We know that our Redeemer lives. So we can have gladness in the midst of that separation, in the midst of that suffering. So, you get, the funeral, you get the funeral illustration, but in everyday life, with all of the sufferings that we experience in everyday life, is it truly possible to greatly rejoice while in heaviness, while in sadness? If it is what's necessary, if it is, how can we have that great joy in the middle of that sadness? Because that's when we're going to shine. That's when we're going to look different than the world. That's when we're going to declare where our hope is, where our faith is, who we are in Him. When we can find joy in the midst 
of the heaviness. And I think Peter gives us some insight into that, into maintaining our joyful witness in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. And if anybody knew how to do it, Peter knew how to do it, and the early church knew how to do it, because their faith literally was born in suffering and ended in suffering. They had been schooled in living for Jesus in the midst of a great deal of intense hardship. And over and over in Paul's writings, in Peter's writings, in James's writings, in John's writings, you see this theme all the way through the New Testament. Be joyful in all things, give thanks. Uh, for it's God that works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Um, in, in, in everything, in everything, we can be joyful. So how do we do that? I want to point out some things in the text to you. In order to have great joy... In heavy sadness, I believe we've got to begin with this. Reflect on the blessings of salvation. Reflect on the blessings of salvation. I'm going to be honest, I've spent some time on my knees this week just thanking the Lord for saving my wretched soul. I didn't deserve to be saved. I ain't no better than anybody else. I didn't deserve to live as long as I have lived. Let me tell you, there have been a lot better men than me that have gone on to be with the Lord much younger than I have. I thank God for His great salvation that He's lavished on me. But if you look at verse 6, the wherein, wherein you greatly rejoice. What are we rejoicing about? He's pointing us back to those first three verses. Three four and five, which are a, a doxology of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins this whole section of Scripture by saying, thank God, praise God, bless God for what He has given to those uh, who are partakers of His salvation. Notice he said, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has begotten us, uh, us again unto a lively hope. Peter is writing about himself and about those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ like he does. What has the Father done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's given us a new birth. A new birth. We have been born again by the Spirit of God. Remember what uh, Jesus told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter, uh, Nicodemus had some issues with how to relate that to his life. And Jesus said um, that, the, that the wind blows wherever it wants to go. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. But you can see the effect of the wind. And he said, so it is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now listen, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and experienced the new birth, you have been uh, blessed to have the earnest of your inheritance living inside of you. The Holy Spirit inside of us is the down payment of heaven. We get a little taste of heaven on earth just because Jesus lives in us. We have been born again. New birth equals new life. Hello? I got a new life. I was a dead man walking until Jesus breathed the breath of life into my spirit and made me a new man in himself. I've got a new life. I got a new hope. It's a living hope. I love that word he used. That Jesus has begotten us again unto a lively. That word literally means a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. A living hope. It is a hope that never dies. Our hope doesn't die with us. Our hope becomes a reality when we die. The, 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 listen, when the grave rolled away from Jesus' tomb, he opened the door 
to eternal life for us. A new birth, a new hope, a new inheritance. Now he spent a great deal of time talking about this inheritance, but you can go through the New Testament and you can see this inheritance is that we have passed from death to life. The Bible said we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Um, we walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the same spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. But God in His rich mercy and grace has begotten us again. We have been born again into a new and living hope which gives us the inheritance of the saints. Now you, when you look at that inheritance, it is a passage from death to life. The, the, you look at that same passage in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We were children of wrath. That means God was, was, His wrath was aimed at us. His wrath was going to be poured out on us um, because we were walking as children of disobedience. We were children of wrath. Now we're children of grace. We were on our way to hell. And now we're on our way to heaven. It's a new inheritance. We have reservations to a home in heaven. And here, do you know what Peter said? This inheritance is incorruptible. It is undefiled, and it does not fade away. We got reservations in heaven, to a home that cannot perish, a home that cannot decay, a home that cannot, will not ever fade away. That's our inheritance. That's where we're headed. That's, my, that's our reservations. I thought about this week, Cindy... We, listen, everybody's stressed out right now. We, we really need to cut each other some slack in this season, all right? Because everybody's stressed. And, and we say stuff off the cuff and do stuff off the cuff. that get, We get on each other. We just need to cut each other some slack right now. But we, we've been beating this around for a month. Are we going anywhere or not on our, on our anniversary? And I, you know, we, we just couldn't make up our mind. And uh, I just said, you know what, we're going somewhere because we need to get away for a day or two. And um, so anyway, I made reservations on Tybee Island. We ain't never been to Tybee Island. I ain't never been on there, period. She's been over there one time for a business trip. I don't care what the hotel looks like. Honestly, I did all I could do. I hate searching for stuff like that online. But I sent Cindy a link that the reservation has been made. The down payment has been placed. And she sent me back this huge smiley face in reply. We've got reservations. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I got a reservation in heaven. It, it ain't going to be canceled. It ain't going to be corrupted. It ain't going to fade away. That's reason in and of itself, all by itself, for me to have joy. We got a new security. We are kept, this is a powerful verse of Scripture. Peter said in verse 5, We are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. And you're going to realize that in its fullness on the day that your salvation is made complete. Now, we are kept by God's power. Why? Because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what saved us. That's what keeps us. That's, that's what's going to see us through to the end. And listen to me, I got some good news for you. 
If you got Jesus, if He is your Lord and Savior, heaven is your eternal home. God has secured that by His own power through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. We've been justified fully in His name. Our names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Our reservation has been made. We are kept by the power of God through our faith in Christ unto our salvation which is going to be revealed to us fully one day. That's security. Now here's what that says to me in the midst of this suffering. You can tear me all up on the outside. But what's on the inside of me is being guarded by the Almighty. And you can't have that. You can't take that. Read the end of Romans chapter 8, which Paul also wrote in the midst of great suffering. Uh, that's that passage where he, he talked about how the glory that what we experience now is going to be revealed in us someday. But he went on to say, listen, what, what is going to take you out of the love of God? Is the sword, is famine, is peril, is nakedness, whatever it is that comes against you. He said, can any of these things separate you from the love of God that you found in Christ Jesus? And he answered his own question and said, no, nothing in heaven, in earth, or under the earth. Uh, nothing can take away the love of God that you and I have found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's security. We belong to Him. The second thing I think we got to focus on, or that Peter told us we need to focus on in order to have great joy in the middle of all this sadness, not only do we need to reflect on all the blessings of salvation, our birth, our hope, our inheritance, and our security, but we need to be reassured of the transience of suffering. Transients just means temporary. It's not here to stay. Look after. Look at verse 6. The beginning of that verse points us back to that blessing of salvation in verse 3 through 5. But then the verse, his thoughts turn in the middle of verse 6. This is that paradox. His thoughts turn away from the blessing of salvation, the joy of salvation, to the heaviness of the conflict that they find themselves in. Nero's sitting on the throne and he hates Christians. But look what he said. Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness. You are distressed because of the manifold. That means different. Manifold temptations or trials that are coming your way. So his thoughts now turn away from that blessing of salvation to the distress of the trials that they face. And there's two things in that verse that I think he wants us to latch a hold of so that we can grab a hold of our joy again. And that is simply this, that our suffering is seasonal. It doesn't come to stay. My mom used to say this all the time. It doesn't come to stay, it came to pass. It didn't come to stay, it came to pass. And if you want to, listen, if you want to take a look at your life as a Christian, you can, every one of us in this room can say this this morning about our lives, regardless of how long our suffering does last, it did not come to stay. It came to pass. Our suffering will have an end. It is temporary. On the other hand, our joy will never end. The curse is gone when we stand in His presence. So suffering is seasonal. It's always temporary for the Christian. And listen to me, it, even now, even now it comes in waves. Even now there's an ebb and a flow. Even now we get, we get ups 
and we get downs. It's not bad all the time. Can we at least admit that? It's not bad all the time. Now, I know a few people in my life that thought they had it bad all the time. But I cannot say that about my life. It ain't bad all the time. I have good times with my family and my friends. I have good times uh, in church worshiping Him. I have blessings that I don't deserve that come my way every day. I'm not suffering 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, even though I ought to be, even though I live under a world cursed by sin. I experience blessings in the midst of the pain and sorrow and suffering. It's seasonal. It's seasonal. The, la- the other thing that I think he points us to is that suffering is sovereign. There's a little phrase that he inserted there. Though for now, now for a season, listen to this, if need be, if need be, And, and this is one of them things I, I, I need to just preach on one Sunday so that we can wrap our minds around this. There is nothing that happens in the life of a child of God that is coincidental or accidental. My life and your life is in His hands. We are His children. The trials that we face, and this might be hard for you to accept, The trials that we face are either ordered by God or permitted by God. Sometimes it might be for our correction. Sometimes it might be for our perfection. Sometimes it just might be for His glory. But the trials that we endure are either ordered or permitted, ordained by the sovereign hand of God. Sometimes we have problems reconciling that with His goodness, but we understand that He's working all things out. All things are working together for our good. And I use Job all the time, and I don't mean to overuse Job, but Job didn't know what was going on in his life. We get to see the story from the outside looking in. He was living in the midst of that hell where he lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. His wife said, curse God and die. It can't get any worse from you. And he said, you're speaking foolishly. God has given. God has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He didn't understand what was going on. But at the end of the day, he understood this. God is sovereign. Whatever is happening to me, God knows what He's doing. And He knows why He's doing it. And I am content to know and believe that He is a good God, that He is a merciful God, that He is an almighty God, that He can do whatever He wants to do. He can do His pleasing in the earth. He don't need my advice. He don't need my counsel. He don't need my help. He is able to deliver me. Sovereign. Over our sufferings. God knows what he's doing. God, listen. When my mind runs to so many different past scriptures. Listen. When to stomp the first martyr of the church. I can't imagine being beaten to death with stones. 
slow death, agonizing death. First martyr of the church, Stephen. Being beaten to death, preached a powerful message. Begged them to turn to Christ. The result of it was they just railed on him and began to throw the stones and take his life from him. The Bible made a very clear point of letting us know that those people that were throwing the stones laid their feet, their garments down at the feet of a man named Saul. A man that hated the church. Who thought his mission in life was to destroy the church. And when Jesus had that encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus, he said, Why are you persecuting me? Paul said, Who are you, Lord? Jesus said, It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Now, you can believe whatever you want to believe. I believe that when Saul witnessed the stoning of Stephen and the joy that he had in seeing Christ standing at the right hand of the Father, enough joy that it caused him to pray for those that were killing him, that something clicked in Saul's heart, pricked his heart, began to convict him of the path that he was on, and ultimately resulted in his conversion. How could God order and ordain? How could God even permit the stoning to death of a man named Stephen because he counted him worthy to suffer for his namesake? Read the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Not everybody got the kind of deliverance they were praying for and looking for. Some of them were torn apart by lines. Some of them were sewn asunder. Some of them wandered around destitute and naked in the caves of this earth. The Bible said the world was not worthy of them. They would not accept deliverance when it was offered to them because they would have had to renounce their faith in Christ to receive it and they would not do that. What in the world could benefit from the stoning of Stephen and the testimony that he died with on his lips? How about the conversion of the man that would write over half of the New Testament? How about the conversion of a man that one day was a murderer and the next day was a missionary of the gospel? He's still doing the same thing today. Elizabeth Elliot, read some of her journal writings. Read some of what she wrote about her husband. The tribe that they went to minister to, he was slaughtered. They, there was one of the last remaining tribes of cannibals, I believe, on the face of the earth. She went back there. She went back there. And loved the people that hated and despised and murdered her husband. And saw many of them turn to faith. God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Now, I'm, I don't mean to labor these points. I, I, this, this thought just came to my mind to illustrate. You know that we sometimes will endure pain intentionally we sign up for it we do the one that came to my mind surgery man sometimes we have things going on in our body that hurt us make us sick 
and we'll sign up for a surgical procedure that we know is probably for a season going to hurt us worse than the pain that we're experiencing right now itself. It's going to be a little bit more difficult for us because of the decision to have the surgery, but we understand and believe that in the end it will serve a purpose and in the end we'll be better than when we started. Can we not see that about the suffering that God chooses to allow us to go through or ordains for us to go through? That it's seasonal, that He's sovereign, and that whatever pain we have to suffer right now is going to be worth it. We may not even have to wait for eternity to see that materialize either. Which brings me to the third, and I'm, I'm going to hurry, I'm going to hurry through these last two. We've got to recognize also the benefit of the trial. And I've already said some of this, so I'm, I'm not going to stay here long. But he used an analogy in verse 7, that the trial of your faith, which is much more precious than gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now we know this, gold is purified by heat. Gold is purified by fire. When you put heat under gold and it, and it begins to melt down, the impurities come to the surface. You get your quality of gold, 14 carat, 24 carat, based on how much it has been subjected to fire. How much heat has been applied to it, how much dross has been skimmed from the surface. And it's pretty well known that the purer the gold, the softer it becomes, the more pliable it is, the easier it is to work with. Um, what makes gold hard is the impurity sometimes in it, but as you continue to soften, as you continue to soften, it becomes more pliable. But, but here's the thing about gold, and here's the thing that Peter said, gold perishes. Gold doesn't mean anything in the economy of heaven. You hear me? Gold does not mean anything in heaven's economy. The streets are paved with gold. It's asphalt in heaven. But your faith, won't perish when it's tried with the fire when your faith is purified in trials the impurity of sin is going to be revealed Chris was talking about this morning in his, in, in his prayer life I, when, when I went through my season where I know what was going on in my body and I felt sick man I done convinced myself I was dying of cancer and everything else but I can tell you some things happened in my life right then that God wouldn't have never dealt with any other way I came clean about some things I confessed some things God dealt with some self-centeredness in my life God dealt with my lack of prayer God dealt with a lot of things in my life that were brought to the surface through the suffering and he skimmed it away he perfected me not that I'm perfect, but He moved me along in my growth. My heart became more pliable in His hands because I was subjected to the fire. James chapter 1, I'm not going to look these up because I'm, I'm, I'm running for time right now. James chapter 1, can you throw them up there for me? James said it. James, by the way, was uh, bashed, as I understand his death, if I remember it correctly, he was bashed over the head with a club and shoved down the steps at the temple in Jerusalem. That's how he died. Half-brother of the Lord Jesus knew all about suffering, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, 
Don't read that as temptation to sin. Read that as, as different kinds of trials, different kinds of sufferings. Why should you count it all joy when you suffer? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, perseverance, and the, and the, and the, the, the patience that is at work in your life will do a perfect work. And in the end, you will be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. The benefit of the suffering is that God is doing something in your life that He could not, would not do without it. There are some things that will only be dealt with as our faith is pushed through the fire. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, here's what Paul said. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. All of these New Testament writers were suffering in their trials with joy because they knew that ultimately their faith would benefit from that purification of the trial. It also... Faith is also proven by trials. There are a lot of false professors in the world today. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. Their faith will not stand up under trial. It proves... God is not trying to destroy our faith. I want you to understand that. When God's at work in the life of a Christian, what He ordains and what He permits is there for our good. God ain't trying to destroy our faith. He wants us in heaven. You understand that? If there was something that could destroy us, God wouldn't permit it. He want, he's not trying to exclude us from heaven. He's trying to equip us for heaven. But people that don't have real faith, it'll be exposed by the fire. It'll reveal what kind of faith you have, if you have any at all. This is a dumb illustration, but I remember people would sign up for work at the city of St. Mary's and they would put on their job application what their skills were, equipment operator. And the boss man, his favorite thing to do was get on that D6 caterpillar out there and push this pile of rocks. I was amazed at the number of guys that would sign equipment operator on the operation. When they sit on that bulldozer, they didn't know how to crank it up. They didn't understand the kill switch feature was you cut the diesel fuel off. They didn't understand that on a D6 Caterpillar, the throttle works in reverse. So when you mash it, it goes slower. When you let off, it goes fast. You ain't never seen more panicked guys in all your life that claim to be an equipment operator. When they put that Caterpillar D6 in gear and it was going faster than they wanted it to be and when they pressed the throttle or when they let off of the throttle, it went even faster. It was reversed. And, and you know, he, he, they shut the tractor off and he said, let's get one thing straight. You ain't a bulldozer operator. So you want to be more specific. Trials will prove what you trust more than anything else in this world. Anybody can say anything. Only real faith will endure. Only real faith 
will perfect you in the trial and prove you. Last point. Reminders. We need to be reminded of the reward of a faith that shines in the midst of the trial. And, and listen, sometimes I hear people say, I just hope I make it to heaven. I just want to make it to heaven. Can I tell you something? If you trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you're going to make it to heaven. All right? That's settled. He's done that. He's finished that. He paid the price for your sin. He justified you fully before the Father. You are clothed in His righteousness. He made Him to be sin for you who knew no sin that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. It ain't your good works that's going to get you there. It ain't how how, how perfect you live this life out. It's by your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you're getting to heaven. That That is a gift to you of eternal life. By grace through faith, He gave you that gift. That phrase, though, I just hope I make it. That is, a lot of times, a skin-of-my-teeth mentality. Is, is I want to do just enough to get by. I want to do just enough to slide in. When I look at that last phrase in verse 7, Peter said, I, I want you to... Understand that this trial in the end, if it has the effect on you that God intended for it to have on you, that it perfects your faith, that you are going to be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we close our prayers like that a lot of time. We give all praise and all honor and all glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul is saying here is that your faith when it is perfected, brings praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ by the way that you have lived your life. When He comes back for me, whether He takes me through death, whether He takes me through the rapture, or whether we have to go all the way to the tribulation until the white stallion returns on the horizon, The end goal of all of my life is to hear the Lord Jesus say, Well done, well done. That's what I want. I don't want to just slide in and and him look at me and say, Boy, you about didn't make it. I want him to say, You did well. You, by the way that you struggled through the suffering with the joy of the Lord as your strength, you, by the way you lived your life even though you were persecuted and tried and sown asunder, you, by the way that you shined for me, brought praise and honor and glory to my name. I want him to say, well done. You know what? That, the fact that he saved my wretched soul is enough to motivate me to do all that I can while I live on this earth to magnify His name. Paul probably looking out the cell of his prison, looking at the place where he would lose his head in a few days, told Timothy, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. I'm ready to be offered 
And the time of my departure is at hand. He said that the Lord had a crown of righteousness that He's going to give me on that day. And not just me, but all of those who love His appearing. I can look at what is ahead and face the trials of life with faith and joy because of the reward that He gives. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, Romans 8, 18, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So, great joy in heavy sadness is a testimony to a lost and dying world that we have a hope that they do not have, that we have an inheritance that they do not have, that we cling to a promise that they cannot yet claim, that we have a reward that they don't know anything about. You don't have to fake joy. I don't have to fake joy. Listen, we're living in hard times. We ought to agree with those that are grieving. We ought to be sad when somebody loses a loved one. But at the same time, we don't have to fake joy. We just have to focus on the things that bring us joy. And those things help us be joyful in the midst of the heaviness of this world that we live in. Amen. Let's stand. Lord, I, I love you and I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, you've helped me through this word this week. I don't want to be the one that is overcome by fear or frustration. I don't want to be the one who, who just gets angry or anxious. I want to be the one that in the midst of everything that we're going through right now that manifests the joy of the Lord as my strength. I want to experience great joy in the middle of all of this heaviness that we're enduring. Help us, God, to turn our focus on these things that Peter so, so eloquently pointed us to. If it helped him, it'll help us. If it helped the early church, it'll help us. Today has been declared by the Billy Graham Association to be a day of prayer for the people of Afghanistan. We have Christian brothers and sisters, both native to Afghanistan and, and people that went there to share the gospel, Americans. They're trapped. They're surrounded. Some of, them, some of them have even said this week that they know that this will be the last day that they assemble together on earth as your people. But oh, what a reward awaits. Or there's some ways that I feel a great heaviness about what they're facing. 
And then at the same time, I'm envious of their faith. And I'm envious of the reward that awaits them. So as we pray for them today, may we also pray for ourselves that when our time comes, however it comes, that our faith will burn just as brightly, that our joy will be manifest because of the hope that we found in Christ Jesus. Have your way in this invitation, God. Whatever you want to do, I pray you do it. Help us to heed and respond to the voice of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
to you. 